Hello, and welcome to Arbitral Insights, a podcast series brought to you by our international arbitration practice lawyers here at Reed Smith. I'm Jose Estigarraga, Global Head of Reed Smith's International Arbitration Practice. I hope you enjoy the industry commentary, insights, and anecdotes we share with you in the course of this series, wherever in the world you are. If you have any questions about any of the topics discussed, please do contact our speakers. And with that, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of our podcast series, Arbitral Insights. This podcast I'm doing with Catherine Lewis, one of our associates in the Global Commercial Disputes Group with me in London. And we're going to be focusing on the conflict of jurisdictions in international arbitration and drawing out some practical issues that Catherine and I have come across from a few recent cases that we've done together and indeed one case that we're currently doing together. So hello, Catherine. Hi, Gautam. How about we start off by me asking you to share with our audience some of the common features uh, of the cases that we've worked on where we've had a conflict of the jurisdiction issue? Absolutely. So, yeah, as we all know, we act for a huge range of international clients who have operations in a wide number of jurisdictions. I'll explain some of the features of the contracts or the scenarios where there has been a conflict in the dispute resolution clauses or jurisdiction provisions. So as an example of some of these potential circumstances or or pitfalls, I suppose, a lot of these contracts are intended to operate globally. And there might be different teams responsible for running different parts of, of contracts. We also might have multiple contracts, which are either overlapping either in in time or in subject matter. And these multiple contracts may have jurisdiction clauses that conflict with each other. And also we will have circumstances where there's been a merger or an acquisition and the business has changed and is now operating slightly differently. And in those circumstances, those individuals who had initial responsibility uh, for the contract are no longer with the business. And you lose some of that insight and that knowledge about how the contract either was intended to operate or some of the original drafting features. Thanks, Catherine. So in these sorts of cases where we have conflicts of jurisdiction, we could have one agreement that stipulates arbitration and another agreement that stipulates litigation. So tell us a little bit about how the initial breach of the arbitration clause might arise. Right. So the cases that you and I have worked on, Gautam, the um, arbitration clause has been breached by one party initiating court proceedings in another jurisdiction. So in our cases, one party has commenced litigation in Texas, and in another case, it was litigation in the New York courts in the US. And generally, there's a bit of an assumption that the court seized by the claimant will be one that the claimant, for whatever reason, is of the view that the outcome will be more favourable to it. So the second party, the defendant, um, our client, then has to decide whether to accept the breach by the claimant and litigate in in the courts or to seek to enforce the arbitration agreement in the contract. Yeah, and you know that always brings in an interesting feature, doesn't it, there, where if the parties have agreed to a dispute resolution provision, in our case, arbitration, and there's another agreement that says litigation, how would we look to enforce the arbitration agreement in that sort of situation, Catherine? So in our cases, we, after consultation with our client and with our colleagues, often in the US, we've decided to commence arbitration in accordance with the agreement between the parties. 
And how we've done that is by submitting a request for arbitration to the relevant institution, whether it's LCIA or ICC or an informal process. So that request for arbitration will set out in broad terms with reference to the contract, the breach of the arbitration agreement by the other party. And we've also sought damages based on the costs incurred in litigation. So for example, there have been some initial costs incurred in either defending or filing a motion to dismiss the litigation or just doing some pre-litigation discussions with the client or investigating the allegations. So those kind of costs that are related to the litigation, we will be seeking as damages in the arbitration for breach of the arbitration agreement. And in that request, we can also include any other counterclaims or cross-claims we want to bring. But at this stage, we're often just looking at initial issues of breach of the arbitration agreement. Thanks, Catherine, because tactically, I know you, you and I have found that ensuring that we act upon the arbitration agreement is very important because very often, indeed in every case, I should say, our opponents have tried to get round the arbitration agreement and we're looking to ensure that it's upheld because the parties agreed up front that that contract and those disputes under that contract would be determined by arbitration. So once we've decided, as you've said, that we want to enforce the arbitration agreement and we take the steps, as you mentioned, about drafting a request for arbitration, setting out the a breach of the arbitration clause and other matters that are pertinent, if you could just share with our audience some of the practical things that it's important to keep in mind when commencing arbitration. Of course. So any decision to commence arbitration should be taken promptly. And crucially, the defendant to the litigation, so in our case, our client who's seeking to enforce the arbitration agreement, should not inadvertently accept the jurisdiction of the court, for example, by filing a defence or even requesting an extension of time for a defence. It's quite difficult to row back once you've accepted the court's jurisdiction to determine a dispute. Once the request has then been filed and served on the other party, the claimant in the litigation then has a choice whether to press forward with its litigation in the knowledge that our client and we would challenge the jurisdiction of that forum or to agree to resolve the dispute by means of arbitration. So for us, it was important, Gautam, as you were saying, to gain a tactical advantage over the claimant at an early stage by having the case determined in our client's choice of forum. By adopting this approach, it left the other party under pressure to involve lawyers with expertise in international arbitration and also to appoint an arbitrator within the required time under the relevant institutional rules. It also put our client in a strong position in terms of compliance with the contractual provisions as well as the arbitral procedure rules. I suppose overall I find it's quite important to draw a line then between the contentious dispute between the parties, you know, who breached what and when and the damages, and the mechanism for resolving that dispute, which should be in accordance with the contract. Yeah, and that's very important because as you and I found from a practical perspective from the work we've done together, we have approached our cases from the perspective of the party who's been brought into a court matter when it shouldn't be a court matter because it should actually be an arbitration. And so acting promptly at the first available 
point is critical. And as you say, you know, taking all the steps that uh, are important tactically is critical. And it's fair to say that the appropriate juncture to do that is the first procedural point when you can intercept and commence an arbitration. So let's just follow on from what you were mentioning a moment ago, Catherine. So once we've commenced an arbitration by submitting a request for arbitration, drawing on your practical experience from the cases we've been talking about, just tell us a little bit about what would typically happen once we submit that request for arbitration at that important procedural point when we can do so? Of course. So in in our cases, the claimants who had commenced litigation, actually in both cases, have ultimately agreed to arbitrate and they dropped their claims in the US courts. So the parties actually in both cases denied that they had breached the arbitration agreement and that our clients were entitled to the damages that were sought in the request for arbitration. However, the issue of damages as a result of the breach then became one for the tribunal to determine as part of the overall issues in the arbitration. You know, the attitude of the court is always going to be very important in this sort of situation where an arbitration is commenced after a court proceeding has commenced. So tell us a little bit about what the approach of the courts has tended to be when there's this conflict of jurisdictions. I mean, as you can imagine, that will obviously vary between jurisdictions. And my experience is, is English law. And as a matter of English law, the English courts will seek to uphold a jurisdictional clause that indicates an intention to arbitrate. The law in England and Wales is very clear on that. And the court will go to some lengths to ensure that um, an intention of the parties to arbitrate will be upheld. Whilst I'm not US qualified, we've worked closely with our US colleagues and understand that the petition might be slightly less settled in the US than in England and Wales. But we do understand there's a tendency to suggest that the issue of whether the case should be arbitrated, uh, the validity of the arbitration agreement is a matter for the arbitrators. Thank you very much, Catherine. Now, I'm going to finish off this podcast with you by asking you to look into your crystal ball. Um, And I know you're very good at that, Catherine. So our listeners should uh, get the benefit of your clairvoyance. So do you see this type of issue, this conflict of jurisdiction, being a continuing feature or occurrence in in the sort of work we do? Unfortunately, I do. Um, It's Ideally, you'd have parties that complied with um, all the agreed provisions of a contract. But I think this type of issue is something we're going to continue, continue to see. Our clients, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, have a global presence. And it's not uncommon for contracts to impose obligations that affect all parts of the business, even though some parts might be less close to the contractual, the closely connected to the wording of the of the underlying contract. And similarly, those responsible for implementing the contract may not therefore be aware of you know, the, what's seen as boilerplate provisions regarding jurisdiction or conflict resolution. And also, we've got a lot of long-running contracts, which might be subject to update or amended by side letters and have new jurisdictional clauses inserted. And at that stage, there might not have been full appreciation of other jurisdictional clauses already in existence that might still be applicable. And I suppose, slightly cynically on my part, there will always be aggressive injured parties who will seek to litigate in a forum of their choice, irrespective of a contractual agreement to arbitrate. 
So, for example, if there's a particularly favourable local law awarding higher damages for fraud or if local courts are anticipated to be more favourable to one party or another. And I think in those situations, it's absolutely appropriate that such action by a claimant is called out and a party is compelled to resolve the dispute through the agreed mechanism. Thanks, Catherine. Yep, you didn't disappoint me there on your uh, crystal ball gazing at all. (laughs) So, okay, to wrap up, I want to ask you this. Based on what you've learned from the cases you've done involving conflict of jurisdictions, and again, just thinking ahead in terms of some practical lessons that our listeners should be aware of when they're thinking about these sorts of issues. Tell us a little bit about, to wrap up, some of the things you've learned from the cases you've been involved in. Sure. So, I mean, firstly, the importance of paying attention to a jurisdiction clause is, I suppose, an obvious one for litigators. One of the main takeaways, I suppose, for in-house lawyers would be to ensure that the business is fully aware of the importance of jurisdiction clauses and that there is someone in the business with ownership of a particular contract and issues arising. And that'll just help smooth over any initial jurisdictional hurdles at an early stage and help to keep time and costs at a minimum. And the dispute can just be resolved as efficiently as possible. The other thing I've learned is that there is an advantage to be gained by taking control of the dispute at an early stage. For us, by initiating arbitration, it was a comparatively easy win and it gained our client an advantage over the other party. In circumstances where we've been successful in having the case heard in the arbitration forum of our client's choosing, it ensured that our client was well prepared at the outset of the arbitration. And as a, as a final point, um, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to draw a line between the contentious dispute on the one hand, the mechanism for resolving that dispute on the other. And time and costs for all parties can be saved by adhering to the arbitration agreement and the applicable procedural rules. It's been very, very helpful. Thank you for sharing your insights in this latest episode of Arbitral Insights. And we hope that the listeners will benefit from what we've been discussing. So thank you, Catherine. Pleasure. Thanks so much, Gaitan. Arbitral Insights is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's global international arbitration practice, email Joseas de Garaga at jia at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, ReadSmith.com, and our social media accounts at ReadSmith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.